In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. In the summer of 2009, clergy and lay people from all over the United States, Canada, and Mexico met in Fort Worth, Texas for the inaugural assembly of the Anglican Church in North America. This was our first gathering of those uh, that had left and uh, had left a church that had left the gospel and had become increasingly uh, liberal uh, to come together to form this, uh, this new Anglican Church assembly. And so uh, we met and over days we ratified a new canon and constitution and uh, we elected a new archbishop, the first archbishop of the Anglican Church, uh, Robert Duncan. And he was um, installed at Christ Church Plano in Texas. And when uh, Archbishop Duncan was installed and he was able to preach, he warned us about uh, what can happen when we are conservative and traditional, that we can become insular. The danger of having a traditional church is to pull away from a, um, a context, a culture that is increasingly um, you know, uh, rejecting the gospel, that is uh, increasingly secular, and to become an insular group turned in on ourselves. And he warned us against that and said that we had to be constantly on mission planting churches, proclaiming the gospel, doing the work of mission, going to those who are in need to hear that gospel. And so he inaugurated for us Mission Sunday uh, to be the penultimate day of the season of Epiphany, uh, that next to the last Sunday when we would focus upon mission. And so since that time, we have had this Mission Sunday to think and focus on what it means to be a church on mission. This is the purpose of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was not supposed to be just a nation for themselves. They were not supposed to be insular. They were not supposed to be a people turned in on themselves. They were given the, the message of good news. They were given the message of God's love so that they could have transformed lives, so that they could transform the lives of the people around them. They were supposed to be a seed that was going to go out and teach holiness to all the people of all the world. That is the purpose of uh, God's people, the nation of Israel. And we see that over and over again in the scriptures. We see it here in Isaiah chapter 61, where uh, we read this message about uh, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon his anointed one. Now, this passage you may have noticed uh, as familiar. We saw it just several weeks ago when uh, Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. And he opens the book of Isaiah and preaches and says, uh, Today in your hearing this has been fulfilled. You'll remember that that is in Luke chapter 4. And the passage that Jesus reads is this passage from Isaiah 61. This is what he reads and says, This has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is it that he's read? First off, that the anointed one has come to bring good news. So that is the meaning of Messiah or Messiah. This is the anointed one, the one that has been um, prepared by God, set aside for the holy purposes of the Lord. In Greek, we say Christos. So this is not the last name of Jesus. This is his title. He is Christos. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the one that God has set aside to do his work. What is the good work of the Savior? And uh, what is... Uh, 
his purpose. His purpose is to bring good news. What is that good news? What do we mean when we say gospel? The good news is that God sees the suffering of his people and he responds. Right? God became man so that man might become one with God. That is the good news. That God sees us in our suffering and he responds first and foremost with the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit. So this is the good news that we receive. We see him responding to the poor, uh, to the brokenhearted, to the captives, to those who are bound. And when we see these groups, these should uh, remind us of those groups in Ezekiel chapter 34 that we uh, read as our mission statement for Jesus the Good Shepherd, right? We have it all over the church, this mission statement about uh, the Lord desiring to proclaim uh, to the captive, to the broken, to the sick, to those who are in need. Uh, right? This is the Lord's response. He sees those who are in the worst situation, those who cannot advocate for themselves, those who cannot speak for themselves, those who cannot pull themselves up. And these are the ones that the Lord comes to proclaim his good news, his own love. So this is what we read uh, the Messiah is to do, is to, to go forth for those uh, good groups. And then we read uh, that he is... Uh, inviting us and this is so key and important he is inviting us to participate in that work of salvation that work of proclaiming the good news so it's not that christ comes and does that or the prophets come and do that and that's enough but we're invited to participate with the prophets we're invited to participate with the lord in proclaiming this good news how do we do that we do that by being transformed and you'll see here in isaiah chapter 61 how it is that the Lord uh, transforms us. Here in verses 2 and 3, we read about those who mourn, right? We read about those um, who are faint of spirit, right? And these are the conditions that we've read about in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that we've read about in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. Do you remember this where the Lord says, blessed are those who mourn? Right? Blessed are those who pour in spirit. You remember that? He's saying this is the condition of the heart that we need to receive the Lord. We have to mourn our own sins. We have to mourn the sins of others. We have to recognize our own poverty of spirit. Do you remember that? This is the condition of the heart that we have to have. And the Lord's response to that, his response to our mourning, is to uh, give us a headdress instead of ashes. To give us the oil of gladness instead of mourning. To give us a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So the Lord would heal us and he would restore us. He would give us this beautiful headdress. He would give us a garment of praise. He would give us the oil of gladness. That is, he would bathe us. He would wash us. He would tend our, our wounds. He he would uh, anoint us and, and put on beautiful clothes so that we can do what? So that we can go out and do the work that the Lord has given us to do. So when we're mourning and when we recognize our own failure and we turn to the Lord, he will strengthen us, he will heal us, he will restore us, and he will invite us to participate with him. The first way we do that is we're planted by the Lord, right? We read that we become oaks of righteousness. And we've seen this before too, right? Where we have these plantings that are put beside those, uh, those waters, right? Those trees that put 
down their roots into the bank and into the river so that they can drink from the Holy Spirit. And these oaks are trees that do not move, right? They do not waver. So when the world is um, adrift, where there's a storm, where there's trouble, uh, when there's change, and when the people around us are constantly changing and they're constantly coming up with new ideas and new ways of living, we are maintaining and we are steadfast in how it is that the Lord planted us, who it is that he called us to be. We're not jumping from this thing to that thing. We're standing firm as oaks of righteousness in the work of Christ, in his gospel, in his good news. We're participating him uh, with him as being steadfast. And then the work that we do, the work that we do ended being steadfast, having been transformed, is resurrection work. He calls us to do resurrection work. Isn't that interesting? Here you see in verse 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. That's resurrection. They're going to raise up former devastations. That's resurrection. They shall repair ruined cities. That's resurrection. That's what we read in the Revelation to St. John. The new Jerusalem that descends, that comes down, that restores creation that restores the world, that restores us. We're called to participate in that resurrection work by rebuilding and restoring and repairing. When we go out into the world, our job as resurrection people is to restore and to rebuild our communities, our families, our ways of being with one another. We reject acrimony. We reject violence. We reject aggression, and we call upon love and kindness and mercy and the gentleness of God. And in doing these things, we become participators with his resurrection. So we see this invitation that the Lord gives, and he gives it immediately upon his resurrection. We read about this in John chapter 20, right? We read about this in John chapter 20, that um, the Lord comes and he appears to them and he invites his disciples that had been hiding in that upper room to participate in this work. What does he do? First off, we read that he comes on the first day of the week. Now that's very important because he resurrects on the first day of the week. And sometimes people miss that, right? Sunday is the first day of the week. And that's why we meet on Sunday morning, because we are here primarily to celebrate the resurrection. We are resurrection people, and we are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord. This is not the Sabbath day, right? Sabbath day is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. We did not change the Sabbath. The Lord instituted the Sabbath. We come together today not because it's Sabbath day, but because it's resurrection day, the first day of the week. And we're celebrating that. and participating with the Lord in his resurrection. We read that he comes to them, he proclaims peace to them, and he shows them the wounds of his crucifixion. Now this is incredible. It's incredible that in the resurrection, the Lord maintains the wounds of his suffering for those that he loves. We should think about that when we think about our own resurrection bodies. Are there wounds that we would bear in love that we would not see removed? 
Are there wounds that we have had by suffering for others that we would not have taken away? There would be indications of our love for others? The Lord comes in His resurrection body still with those marks. And He shows them as a way of revealing Himself. He says, peace be with you. And we see this invitation now into his ministry. He says, the Father sent me, so I am sending you. This is our clear indication again and again that Jesus didn't come to do something and then we sit back and enjoy the fruit of the labor. He sent, was sent and our response is to go too. Some people like to use a red herring and say, oh, can there be anything that we can do to earn salvation? That's not the question that the scripture asks. It's not the point of what's being told in this story. The Lord has offered himself freely for us before we could understand it. And our response is to do that same work of salvation and resurrection. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. We are called to participate in that work. He gives them the Holy Spirit, which they have to have to do that work. Right? He meets them in fear and mourning and suffering. He gives them the Holy Spirit and he sends them forth. And the purpose that they have for receiving the Holy Spirit is the forgiveness of sins. And you'll read that some sins will be forgiven and some sins won't. Why are some sins not forgiven? Because they're not repented over. There's no such thing as a sin that isn't uh, forgivable. The only unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit, which means not repenting. Repentance stands at the center of the church. Everything that we do is centered around that turnstile of repentance. We come to the Lord with mourning. We come to Him with suffering. We come to Him with shame and grief. And the question is, will you turn towards righteousness? Will you turn towards holiness? Will you participate in my resurrection work? And if our response is, not just with our hearts and our minds, but with our whole bodies and spirits, yes, I will participate in holiness, then we participate in repentance and we receive forgiveness. But our response is, I want to stay angry. I want to stay mad. I want to stay irritated. I want to stay in the place where I have been. And I'm not willing to repent then what forgiveness is available? So repentance stands at the heart of us as a community of believers. This is how we gather together, to encourage one another in repentance and the turning towards good works. And then we see that Thomas was not there to see the Lord. Thomas gets a bad rap from some preachers, unfortunately, uh, because I think of just a misunderstanding of uh, doubt and what doubt is. Thomas does not believe the way that the others believed. And who would? Which one of us, if I told you about a great miracle that happened last Sunday and you missed it, would say, oh, that's fine, I just believe it the way you do. Which one of us, if coming into that upper room and heard the story that the other ten told, would say, oh, that's great, I'm with you guys. Which one of us wouldn't cry out and say, oh, that I had seen him. Oh, that I had met him. And which one of us would be able to have the faith and belief to proclaim what we had seen without having seen it? Wouldn't we with Thomas say, how can I believe? How can I understand? How can I proclaim? See, there are two kinds of doubt. There's the kind of doubt that turns into disbelief. 
The kind of doubt that says, I won't believe. And then there's the kind of doubt that says, I want to believe, and how can I? Thomas's is the doubt that turns to belief and to the belief of others. You see how Thomas's doubt moves towards belief and enables us to proclaim the risen Lord. And we set a high standard for ourselves, right? Just as Thomas does. We say, there's no way that I'll be able to believe it just with my eyes, but I would have to put my fingers in. I'm going to have to put my hand in. I'm going to have to have this real physical experience. I'm not going to be able to just see and hear. But that bar was higher than what Thomas really needed. When the Lord comes and he appears again, he doesn't need to touch the risen Lord. We read that he sees and then he proclaims, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He gives the full statement of belief. He recognizes that Christ is not only Lord, but that he is God himself. So he didn't need to put his fingers in the way he thought. And he comes into fullness of belief. And Jesus says, uh, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have that lowest bar. But the message is for us that we all have doubt. The question is, what are you doing about it? Is your doubt a doubt that leads you to belief? Is it a doubt where you say, I need to know? I need to see you. Lord, I need to hear you. Lord, I need to have a deeper experience of you. Do we have a doubt that turns towards the Lord and who looks and seeks for him? Or do we have a doubt that dismisses? And if we are going to participate in belief, as St. Paul says, we have to do it with our whole person. In Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about belief that works in the whole person. And belief, as the ancients knew it, as the ancient church knew it, is about the way that we live and the way that we act. Right? Sadly, in the Enlightenment, we get this idea that believing is just an idea that I have in my head that doesn't have to have any correspondence to action or the way that I live my life. They went so far as to say, I can have belief that I can exhibit in my personal life, but not in my private life. This is dangerous and destructive to the human person, and it's dangerous that we would even be tempted to participate in that kind of belief. The belief that we have is a heart and mind aligned belief that is evidenced in the way that we live our lives. There's no such thing as saying, I believe something and not having evidence and daily living. What good is to say, I believe something if it doesn't change the way that I get up in the morning? Doesn't change the way that I go to work? It doesn't change the way that I interact with others. It doesn't change the way that I raise my children or administer my life. What kind of belief is that? It's nothing. The kind of belief that we have affects our whole person and it's a confession of our mouth. Because what comes out of our mouths is a true indication of the condition of our hearts. Hit my thumb with a hammer and see what comes out. That's the real Howard. Right? That's the real Howard. So when we're in danger, when we're scared, when we're worried, when we're under stress, 
What comes out of our mouth? What do we say to those around us? Do we talk about the Lord and His goodness? Do we talk about His provision? Do we talk about what He's done for us? Do we talk about His love for us? Do we talk about our own salvation? Do we commend our faith to others? Is that what we talk about when we go to work? When we go to school? When we're at the store? Are we talking about the Lord and what He's done? That's belief. And it's not pretending that everything's okay. It's not pretending that we don't have doubts. It's not pretending that we're happy and that nothing goes wrong in our lives. That's not the scriptures. That's not the life of the saints. That's not the life of Thomas. That's not the life of Paul. Right? He gets beat up and shipwrecked and abused and threatened and killed and chased. And he says, the Lord has brought me to this place. The Lord has brought me here. And finally, when we believe and our hearts and our minds are aligned and we speak the gospel, we respond to the Lord in obedience. We do what he tells us to do. And when we do that, we are on mission. We are on mission. Whether we are in our homes or in our workplaces or we're in a faraway country, when we experience the suffering of this world, we turn to the Lord, we proclaim His name, we tell others what He has done for us, and we share that God loves them too, and can restore them too, and would plant them too, then we are on mission for Christ. There's a large church in Fresno that's been there for 40 or 50 years and the founding pastor was a great friend of Bishop John David's. He used to go and, and preach there at least once a year at uh, the founding pastor's invitation. And indeed, when Bishop Eric was consecrated, we had no church in the diocese that could house um, all of the several thousand people that came and we had his consecration at the People's Church by their invitation and wonderful hospitality. And one of Bishop John David's favorite illustrations in his sermons was the sign in their parking lot. When you were driving down the street, you'd seen the sign that said People's Church, and you'd know where to turn in. But when you left the parking lot, the sign on the back said, you are entering the mission field. That's the sign that we need on our door, above our rooms and on our hearts. We are entering the mission field. And we are going out to proclaim Christ and his love, the good news of his salvation for the world.